0: Good afternoon. I'm Rhonda Feynman, and this is the Healthy Options program here on WERU Community Radio. Today's discussion is of great importance. You know, spring—we think is springing—and um, we're back in our yards in the woods. We're out and about in our uh, our winter clothing as we're romping and tromping in the uh, in our areas. And you know what it is? It means it's prime prime territory for, you guessed it, for ticks. Yes, just take a moment. It's spring, they're ticks. With this in mind, we turn to our resident expert, Dr. Beatrice Santier, who has been a frequent guest on Healthy Options. Dr. Santier is an internist and pediatrician who lectures on Lyme disease and related tick-borne disorders throughout Maine and also nationally, and she does that to both professional and community groups. She's an active member of the Vector-Borne Disease Workgroup for the Maine CDC, as well as a member of the International Lyme and Associated Disease Society. And Dr. Santier most recently, has served on the 2022 Federal Tick-Borne Disease Working Group. That's called the Access to Care and Education Subcommittee. We definitely want to know what that means. And I want to welcome you back to Healthy Options, Dr. Beatrice Santier. Thank you for taking the time to come and join us again right here.
1: Thanks for the invitation, Rhonda. It's always so good to be with you.
0: So, where to begin? We're first of all, we're doing this in May. Normally, or in the past, we've done this in June. Now, of course, this may be rebroadcast, but we are doing this a little earlier um, than we usually do because things are happening sooner. Would you would you say that's true? W- w- what's happening in our in our world in the t- on the Tick Channel? <laughs> <laughs>
1: It is true. People are having close encounters already, which is not surprising because as soon as temperatures get above freezing, even when it's tucked into episodes of snow like we're having around these parts, but um, as soon as temperatures are above freezing, deer ticks, uh, black-legged ticks, become active and we're... um, we know that there have been tick attachments. There have already been reported cases of Lyme disease for 2022. That was true as of March. You know, that's always kind of uh, stressful. 169 cases as of March, <laughs> which is kind of on par, but even more um, more dramatic. And I'm looking forward to learning more about this um, next week or the week after at the vector-borne um, meeting. But we had a case of Powassan virus in the state. That is a tick-borne virus, and it, it just seems it seems too early to be seeing this. So um, I'll be interested in the details of the case.
0: Oh, so this will be through the main CDC uh, yes. the state state meeting that you're having. To discuss yeah. it, I know. I believe it was someone in Waldo County. A uh, very yeah. sad, sad situation. Uh, yeah. Somebody, uh, somebody uh, died from that. Yeah. So when we're not only talking then about about Lyme disease, yeah. uh, let's talk about what. So Powassan, though, I understand is is more rare. But what does rare mean?
1: Well, you know that's that's an excellent comment because it is a rare finding, at least. Um, severe cases that come to our attention. It's it's widely held that there are probably um, many cases that go undiagnosed. Powassan virus comes in two lineages, uh, one that is transmitted by the woodchuck tick, Ixodes kukii. The second lineage, often called deer tick virus, is transmitted by the deer tick and they are distinguishable, though they act in the same way, but it is a neurologic virus. It it impacts the nervous system. Um, And devastating neurologic disease is probably what comes to the attention of medical providers. So we don't know what the baseline number of cases is when when, uh, it has been looked at in ticks. And that's, not been for a while, so that was last time around 2016. It's a it's a low um, incidence finding even among ticks, but when it happens to you suddenly, that rare disease becomes a hundred percent. You know, so yes. so it is rare. It and it's not wrong to call it rare. It is rare, but it is devastating when it occurs. We've had at least two um, fatal cases in the last, uh, what, eight years or so, yes. 10 years. Yes. And now, that's, yeah, that's a lot.
0: It is. And, but you're also saying someone might have it and it not be as manifest and pronounced. Right. So that's, that's hmm. interesting. So we really don't
1: know. Well, like many of the diseases, you know, um, West Nile comes to mind. That's also in its severe forms, West Nile virus. It it's generally, um, a, a, Mosquito-transmitted infection. Though interestingly, it has been found to uh, in black-legged ticks. um, There's been no evidence that they can transmit it. And you know, so mosquitoes are the issue with West Nile virus. But we know that the prevalence in society is far higher than the prevalence of disease from it in society. And so. Yes, you know, you you can have these without being very sick and and requiring attention. The issues, of course, are that we don't have treatment. All we have is supportive treatment, so we can try to support your body while you recover. But we do not have ways to uh, combat it. And the other important issue—that's
0: Th- issue, for, for the palasin, yes, Paulson, well, discussed. also a snile. Oh, but no.
1: the other important issue about these. Um, tick-borne or mosquito-borne viruses, but specifically the important issue for Powassan virus is its transmission time. Um, this virus can be acquired from a tick that is carrying it in 10 to 15 minutes of attachment. So, wow. so, so if it were monumentally common, um, I think we would know. So that's point one, but point two is if anything, gives you the idea that it is a good thing to prevent tick attachments. This one ought to get your attention and rare, but devastating. So um, keeping ticks off of us is, is a crucial um, preventive method for that virus, but also for all of the other tick-borne diseases. That's our level best approach to ticks is keep them off.
0: So the, so we were talking about Powassan as a virus, Right, and but when we're also talking about bacteria, so let's just clarify that, and then let's talk about the different kinds of ticks we might see because you have already mentioned a wood tick and a deer tick, and and so let's clarify all that, and then
1: yeah, well, you know, the ticks that are active right this minute, if you're encountering ticks, are probably adult deer ticks who failed to uh, get a a meal last fall, and now they're uh, questing again. Um, the next tick that's going to be on the scene in Maine will be, uh, dog ticks. So they're a different, different group of ticks. They're generally larger. They have very distinctive markings on their, um, on their backs that what I call either lacy white markings or white racing stripes sort of on the back of the tick and they, They are quite visible, so you can distinguish um, dog ticks from deer ticks, not just by size, because size can change as ticks feed. Um, Deer ticks, in terms of their recognizability, are generally small, dark, and have either a a uniformly dark or two-toned coloration, you know, um, dark black or brown, and then this reddish um, lower portion or, or abdomen is what it is um so you've got those and so so dog ticks are about to emerge and they have been abundant in recent past so we we're not going to anticipate less than an abundant crop of dog ticks and fortunately for us in the state of Maine we have not seen any of the diseases that they are capable of carrying um particularly Uh, displayed. So that's good. It's not that they can't transmit disease, but we have not seen that. um, What do they transmit? Well, they can transmit um, what are called rickettsial diseases. So Rocky Mountain spotted fever and its relatives. Um, They can transmit ehrlichia species. Um, There are certain ones that are more likely in dogs and some that we do find in the state. And uh, tularemia, there's another dog tick transmissible thing. Okay. So
0: So you mentioned something about a wood tick.
1: uh, Wood ticks look kind of just like dog ticks. So I I think you'll be hard pressed to identify them on site um, as different. And in the state of Maine, honestly, um, I'm not sure that we see, um, quote, wood ticks particularly, but but dog ticks. The third tick, I guess, that people should be aware of that is an emerging tick in the state is um, the Lone Star tick. Uh, You've probably heard of that one. Uh, Its real name is Amblyoma Americanum, and it has a distinctive appearance as well. It is generally a small tick, generally either uniformly dark, or it has a telltale white dot on its on its back. So it's identifiable in that way. And it too has been known to carry disease, um, um, Ehrlichia species, and I believe Tularemia, but the also um, responsible for STARI, S D A R I. that's um, Southern Tick Associated Rash Illness, which is gonna turn out to be a misnomer as this tick spreads throughout the states. But um, for all intents and purposes, it looks just like Lyme disease, but we have not been able to identify the uh, bacteria agent of Lyme disease in these ticks. So we don't know what the underlying pathogen is. Um, In practical terms, clinicians who would see someone who had the rash of Lyme disease, um, but had a Lone Star tick uh, attachment, even if mostly people don't see the tick that gives them disease. But um, the general recommendation at this point is still to treat as if it's uh, it's Lyme. So there's that. But here's the other important condition associated with Lone Star ticks that um, is an emerging problem. And that is a red meat allergy called alpha-gal allergy. Mm-hmm. And alpha-gal is um Really, it's a sugar. It's a polysaccharide that's probably found in um, the tick saliva of these um, Lone Star ticks. And it can sensitize a person who has been um, bitten and therefore um, sensitized uh, to this product. And it results in or can result in. Not everyone gets it. So there's a lot of information that still has to be discovered but it results in, um, an allergy to red meat. And it's not like you eat a bite of red meat and you suddenly have an allergic response. It's a delayed allergy response. So it's, you know, four hours later or even longer than that. And that makes it quite confusing for people to figure out why they are having the reaction they're having. And in particular, if they're unaware of the tick bite, which we often are, um, though I believe uh, Lone Star ticks are somewhat more often identified just because they're such aggressive little ticks. But the state of Maine it has identified um, Lone Star ticks here. And so I, 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 not in huge numbers. It's not considered to be established yet, but more than there used to be. And and we're seeing some of like the Ehrlichia um, infections in the state they're kind of steady state. It's not like they're dramatically rising, but there appear to be more than there used to be. So again, the association with this tick may be something that we really do have to watch and be mindful for. And so, which means healthcare providers need to be mindful of it, but so do people who, you know, suddenly can't eat certain foods or can't identify why they are feeling so bad. Um, and and some of the reactions have been so severe that they would be characterized as what we call anaphylaxis. That's like a full-blown allergic reaction with respiratory distress and everything. So it can be quite consequential. My goodness. Okay. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. Yeah. Because it wasn't enough that we had these other diseases. Let's 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 see what else we can find.
0: <laughs> it's worth. Uh.
1: Yes. Really. So.
0: If you just joined us, this is the Healthy Options Program on WERU. That's uh, ERU Community Radio. I'm Rhonda Feynman. We're speaking with Dr. Beatrice Santier about ticks and tick-borne diseases today. So we discussed a little bit about the virus. Is Ehrlichia Ehrlichia's a co-infection, right? Let's. So where we're talking mm-hmm. about Lyme disease. Yeah. We're talking about a particular bacteria. And then we have other infections that these little critters, whether... Yeah of all the ones that we just mentioned, uh, can be carrying. Um, do we consider those bacteria as well? Or
1: There there are several other either bacteria or some are characterized as pyroplasms and just co-infections. Let's talk about that for just a second. They are infectors. They are pathogens in their own right. We call them co-infections mostly because, you know, uh, Borrelia burgdorferi or the Lyme bacteria is, is hands down the most common. So we think of these as co-infections, but they're just infections, you know, they, and you can have them all by themselves or you can have them um, concomitantly either from a single tick bite or from, you know, maybe repeated tick bites. There are lots of ways for this to happen. So, and if you've got them, it hardly matters how you ended up with more than one. If you've got more than one, it makes it more challenging, both for diagnosis and for treatment. The good news is that some of them are treatable by the same antibiotics we might use to treat uh, Lyme disease. So in the state, the, the the infections that we track are Borrelia burgdorferi, the agent of Lyme disease, um, Anaplasma phagocytophilum. Um, yeah.
0: Say it three times fast, everybody. Yeah.
1: Okay. That's a white blood cell invader. So, um, but that is is an important infection and that has been increasing quite dramatically um, both in patients and uh, in the ticks. Um, in addition, we track Babesia, which is um, in the group called pyroplasms. It is a red cell infector relative of malaria. So it's a malaria-like parasite that invades red cells and causes a host of problems as a result of that. And you can have them together. And the other that we track for black-legged ticks is Borrelia myomotoi. Um, Myomotoi disease is, I'm not sure if it's actually become nationally notifiable, but it's a relative of Borrelia burgdorferi. But at kind of from a different lineage, the lineage of tick-borne relax, relapsing fever, Borrelia. So it has some um, distinctive findings, although it can look very much like Lyme disease. You know, fever in tick season, are a febrile illness, uh, flu-like symptoms in tick season, it really needs to get people's attention and hopefully um, a, a really broad-minded look at what the possibilities are. Um
0: so how do we check that? Is there are there blood tests? Is that something
1: you know, that we're We don't works? have very good tests for any of these. Um nice thing about anaplasma is if it's if you identify it in the febrile stage and test with PCR testing, that is DNA type testing. So um, we all know what PCR expanded.
0: tests are now, don't we? But we don't <laughs> I don't think anyone really, or maybe most of us didn't mm. think, oh what does PCR mean? It means DNA. It's a, well, I mean, as a test. Yeah.
1: No? It's a, It, it kind of describes. it's polymerase chain reaction. And what happens is it, what it allows that is unique is it allows a sample that has a small number of these organisms to have the DNA or RNA. If it's a virus, you know, it's more likely that um, amplified that, you, that it can be identified and amplified so that it's detectable. You know, um, often these, uh, these infections are not of huge numbers. It's not an overwhelming number of bacteria that are in you. And, you're, you know, if you're looking at blood, that's a high volume to be evaluating. And so when I take, you know, those five little milliliters of blood, am I likely to find it in there? Well, using PCR techniques, I can amplify whatever I find. And maybe it will be detectable. And that has been because, um, well, especially because anaplasma lives in white blood cells, so it's specifically in blood, that makes it a, an identifiable way to detect it. You can also look on a slide if it's a bad enough infection, and you might actually see the bacteria right inside those white blood cells. I mean, okay, you just got forgive my excitement about that. It's just really cool when you can do that. Not good for your patient, but really cool if you can find what's wrong by looking at it No,
0: Yeah, there
1: it is. Right. Same thing for Babesia. One of the ways to identify Babesia, you can use PCR, um, but you can identify it sometimes on a slide. Generally speaking, you have to have a really substantial Lebesia infection, um, by blood volume in order to be able to find it. And, and there are some, uh, protocols for how many different things you have to look over before you say you found it or didn't. So it complicated that way, but you can see it inside of the red cells. I mean, Horrible. But really cool if you can find it.
0: <laughs> you know, yeah. we um, we 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 speak with uh, Dr. B. Santier. By the way, uh, that's who our guest is today on Healthy Options. We speak with you uh, regularly to uh, once a year at least to uh, give us the update of what's happening. So since there are many programs that you can find in the WERU archives, I feel like we we have very uh, we're we're in like. The, we're not in the 101 class anymore we're in the like advanced beginner class of of healthy options tick born programming so those of us who have just are learning about this you know you might have to go back and catch up you know sure. but um in the healthy option archives no well we'll we'll, we'll, we'll we're trying to bring everybody along but for those of you who've heard some of this before you know we are now bringing in some of the uh, more more intricate ideas of uh, red blood cells and white blood cells and uh, all yeah. right tick show uh, tick show um, ad- advanced uh, the advanced course so uh, <laughs> so so are the symptoms the same fever That's- joint pain brashes possibly
1: yeah okay let's let's we kind of have to do it a little bit one at a time, but fever is a common symptom. So among all of them, fever is common. Um, Headache tends to be a common symptom. Uh, Fatigue tends to be a common symptom. Uh, Rash in anaplasma infection, more common in children than in adults. Not the same kind of rash that we see in a Lyme infection. So, the rash of Lyme disease is called erythema migrans and is most commonly a uniformly red expanding rash. Um, People hear about the bullseye, although that's the classic rash of Lyme, that is not the common rash. So, uniformly red expanding rash and usually present at the site of the tick bite. With anaplasma, more common in children to get a rash, and it's kind of a diffuse, uh, pinpricky-looking red rash, and that you know, that may happen fifty percent of the time. It's not that common, so um, and in, in adults case. less so. Yeah, so may or may not have a rash. Um, aching joints, aching muscles is a common symptom in anaplasma. And the fever in anaplasma tends to be a higher fever. I mean, people tend to be really sick uh, with anaplasma uh, when it is symptomatic. So that's sort of that. Uh, Babesia infection, again, the fatigue, headache, um, no rash associated with that. Um, breathlessness and shortness of breath are not an uncommon finding in Babesia infection. And then with all of these, there can be liver function elevations. So if we end up looking in the laboratory, we can find some of these. Um, In Babesia, there might be uh, anemia, so a lowered red blood cell count. Um, Also could be a lower platelet count. In anaplasma, there tends to be a lowered white blood cell count. um, Also a lowered... um, platelet count. So there can be some laboratory findings that might push you in one direction or another. Um, And uh, for anaplasma, we know that we have anaplasma in the state. We know it's an increasing worry. Um, It is widely accepted that you do not wait for confirmatory information before starting treatment. If, uh, If you have someone who is ill with this and you suspect it's possible start treatment immediately. Good news is, um, the tetracycline antibiotics. So like doxycycline, which is first line for, um, Lyme infections is also first line and effective for anaplasma. Um, so there, important for, um, for treating, um, medical providers to know what might be in the area. And, um, and in the state of Maine, we have to consider anaplasma. Absolutely. Um, it's, it's a growing number. I, I checked out the, the Maine Cooperative Extensions, uh, tick report. And what I was, one of the things I was taken with is that the percent of infected ticks has gone up, um, in last year's materials. Um, I think it was like overall 42% of ticks were positive for at least one pathogen it's almost 50 percent of ticks positive for at least one pathogen now um and you know adult tick versus nymphal tick adults are more likely to be infected so in adult ticks positive for at least one pathogen it's almost 60 percent 56.7 percent it's just um and those are the ticks that are you know being sent into them um so this is passive surveillance. This is this is not active discoveries. It's it's consequential. And of those, about 50% of adult ticks that they received, so 48 plus percent, were infected with uh, Borrelia burgdorferi, the agent of Lyme disease. Lyme disease. So, yeah. And wow. the thing with uh, anaplasma is it almost doubled. The infection rate of anaplasma in ticks almost doubled, went from like 7-ish percent to 14-ish percent. So- Wow. Very important. Um, so that that we be mindful that this is an increasing issue.
0: So let's talk. First off, I, I should just say that we do have a special guest here today. Um, I, I know it's hard. It's in the it's in the uh, the tub here on a towel. This mm-hmm. is the tick, because here at Healthy Options, we love to do primary research for many of our. Uh, Many of our guests, no, well, not all of them, but uh, specifically with Dr. B. Centier, I think this is the second time that uh, that we've uh, we've actually had an embedded tick, yeah. and we'll talk about what the, what to do. And this one, uh, apparently, I don't know how, was crawling up the wall in our home. Uh, in, in, a, in a, a room where some clothing from the garden had, had was living. But I just wanted to let people know that there, I, I know you can see this. I know. Um, yeah. <laughs> here it is. Um, I want to talk about a couple of things now that we have um, our uh, our special guest. This wasn't attached to anybody or anything or any animal. Is there any reason to send this in? And why would you or why wouldn't you? um just for data or
1: yeah i i encourage uh sending the ticks into um uh the university uh cooperative extension tick lab it's um it's such a good service and that's where we get this kind of data where the ticks are and what they're carrying the the better citizen scientists we are in collecting these things and um turning them into information. Okay. I think the more we understand risk. Well, I, I,
0: the, 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 uh, Dr. Santir is just being so um, encouraging by calling us um, a citizen scientists. Yes, I've decided that, yes, we are now citizen scientists with this tick that was crawling up my bathroom wall. I want to just tell you I am so pleased to be part of the research. <laughs> And all of you out there, I want you to do your part. A, not get these on you, and B, if you do, we'll we'll talk about, we'll have this all, we're not naming this, by the way. It doesn't have a name. It's not a pet. Um, But uh, we'll talk about where to send it, uh, what the options are, and what to do. Uh, Mm -hmm. But I also want to talk, yeah, so you mentioned something about the University of Maine Extension, and that's one place you can send, Mm -hmm. and that's... Very convenient up in Orono if you are in the state
1: of Maine. And it's a nice price for $15. They identify the tick, the state of engorgement, and they do PCR testing for the three most common um, infections in Maine. So for Borrelia burgdorferi, for Anaplasma, and for Babesia. Um, We talked about whether they're going to be looking for um, Powassan virus anytime soon. And of course, they want to, but that requires because it's a virus. It requires a whole nother level of laboratory, um, what would you call it, precautions. And so they they need a different space and different setup for it. But it's certainly on their t- their wish list for activities they can do and provide. It, it would be um, useful research.
0: So, so we can get. We'll have all that listed on uh, when we when this gets archived. It'll definitely be on the archive. Where right. where to do that? Um, any kind of contact info. If you are listening, I know they don't take ticks from out of state. I don't believe so. No. If you are no. listening, because we do have a, a good listenership around around the country. Another place is uh, through uh, in Massachusetts. It used to be through the university. It is now called Tick Report. We, by the way, are not connected with any of these, so we're just giving these uh, off, uh, out as uh, resources, and that's called MedZoo, M-E-D-Z-U, in in Tick Report in Amherst, Massachusetts, and that that is another place you can send them in. We are happy to report. Uh, we, I even have a picture of something. We did send something in there recently, the one that was embedded, the one that's not in this container. Um, um, and everything came back negative. It said the DNA was quality was good, the RNA quality was good. And uh, out of uh, the abundance of caution, we had a clean removal. Let's talk about how to do that and everything was negative. We even did the uh, Powassan test because of, uh, even though we say it, it would have uh, been transmitted within 15 to 20 minutes, it was clear that didn't happen, something like that. But again, doing research for the program, we said, oh, well, huh? we should just go for the whole, we didn't go for the $200 test, I have to say we had a limit. But, um, but the Powassan was negative, tick-borne encephalitis, uh, and all these, uh, Borrelia, all of the ones that we have been discussing around lichia and Anaplasmosis, all of these infections. So we're happy to say negative and now we will definitely be sending this into the University uh, yeah. right, uh, of Maine, um, right here. So let's talk about what to do not to get a tick, what to do um, if you do, and uh, by the way if you just tuned in, just want to tell you you're listening to the Healthy Options Program here on WERU Community Radio. I'm Rhonda Feynman. Our guest today is Dr. Beatrice Santier. She has uh, lectured far and wide on Lyme disease and tick-related disease, and most recently, we'll definitely want to know what you're doing as a, as a member of the 2022 a Federal Tick-Borne Working Group. Sounds like that this is, uh, some things are happening on the federal level. We'll get to that, but let's do this in an orderly fashion and talk about, um, what to do to prevent and to, uh, deal with ticks. If you have one.
1: Well, really important stuff because, you know, the primary prevention of tick-borne diseases is preventing tick attachments. And so when, when we can do that, we really should, um, first order of business is to be aware of where you are and where, um, where you might come in contact with with ticks and, 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 and such. To that end, the university um, report, you, want, this can, you can get this right offline. It's really great at the Cooperative Extension site of the University of Maine. And they talk about the human activity at the time of black-legged tick encounters. And it included things like yard work, gardening, playing outside, walking, hiking, pet related, occupationally related. So in descending order, they kind of look at what people were doing when they found their ticks. Um, By and large, throughout the country, um, most associations are with activities right in our own backyards. So you just have to be mindful. And that means there are things you can do, landscaping things you can do to make it less likely that you encounter ticks on your own property, mowing the grass short, making it um, what they call zero scaping, drying out your yardscape a little, because at least deer ticks particularly require it to be moist. We're having a lovely moist spring. I, I think there's a good chance that's going to be good for our crop of ticks. If we dry out in the summer, it will be a little better. So, but but so how do you prevent them from getting on you? Um we often say light colored clothes. The biggest reason for that is their dark colored ticks. You might identify them. If you tuck shirt into pants and pants into socks, you create a barrier because ticks crawl up. They start low and crawl up. So creating a barrier makes a difference. It keeps them off your skin. If you further treat those clothing items, particularly uh, your shoes and socks with permethrin or purchase permethrin treated clothing, that is a toxic agent for ticks and will prevent um, them from reaching your skin. So you can kill them or at least neurologically disable them on contact. Um, And I tell you the things that have been actually studied and found to be effective. I, I try to leave off the stuff that isn't. Finally, if you put on your exposed skin, an EPA approved or um, registered repellent. You can have some confidence that it does what it says it does and it does it safely. Um, You will have done everything you can do to keep ticks off of you. Once you come in from your adventure, take your clothes and don't put them on the floor in the laundry room. Toss them in the dryer. High heat for 10 minutes kills ticks. Um, If you wash them first, they can survive the wash. Then you need 50 or more minutes in the high heat dryer to kill ticks. Take a shower within two hours of your outdoor activity. um, Does a couple of things. Washes off ticks that have not yet attached and allows you to do a really good look and feel everywhere searching for these bumps. They're small ticks. You might not really notice them unless you feel them. So become acquainted with your own personal body bumps. And if you feel a new one, have someone look if it's in a place you can't see and see if there are legs on it. If you find a tick, please don't panic. Um, Proper, timely, careful removal um, prevents transmission of infection. So what is proper, timely removal? Using fine nose tweezers and grabbing the tick as close to the skin as possible steady, gentle pressure, lifting the tick straight out. And you'll see the skin tent a little bit. That's okay. Don't stop pulling. Just steady, gentle pressure straight out. And it comes out a little hard because it has barbed mouth parts and secretes a little cement-like substance. Um, and the good news is if it doesn't come out hard, it might not have been attached that long. That'd be all right. Put the tick in some safe place for safekeeping. Wash your hands, wash your tool that you used and wash the, uh, site of the bite, write it down the date that this happened, let your physician know, um, if there is any evidence of feeding, if there's any engorgement of the tick, um, you really need to contact your healthcare provider and see, uh, if you would be an appropriate candidate for some kind of preventive treatment, um, in general, that has to be started within 48 hours to be effective, though um, so I, I guess some recommendations say 72 hours. I'm not sure that matches the science, but it still says that. And um, what would that just, be? Um, we,
0: we've had this conversation about the two dose thing and versus 10 days or two weeks. or
1: Yeah, yes. well, Yeah, it's, it's, it's a long and complicated discussion. The recommendations continue to come from, um, uh, some of the societies for, uh, using single dose doxycycline prophylaxis for particular tick bites. Um, the issue with that is the, the design of that study really was not made to determine, um, if you caught Lyme disease, just really the end point was developing a rash at the site of tick bite. And what we know is that not everyone gets a rash who gets Lyme disease. In fact, in last year's um, CDC data, 36% of people with confirmed cases of Lyme disease in the state of Maine developed a rash. That 36%, that's, uh, that's like an all-time I mean, low. So is that, is that real? Well, it's the data we have. So does that mean that we're not receiving reports of patients who have the rash and therefore have Lyme disease? Maybe, but we don't know. So, so being mindful that it's not a sufficient marker. And then the study followed only six weeks and six weeks is good, but not great because we know that late manifestations develop later than that. So it didn't look at those. It it couldn't. It just based on the design. Now, now I don't, I don't think they were trying to get it wrong. I I think that they were taking into account a lot of factors, like people who encounter one tick in a season might encounter two or three. So which one gave them Lyme? Right. Difficult to do the study, but that doesn't mean that the study showed what they concluded that it did. And in fact, they had such wide confidence intervals that one case in any direction could have made a huge difference. And they didn't count when they were looking at it. People who went from having negative blood work to having positive blood work, um, but didn't have a rash. So it's a complicated assessment, but uh, it makes statistically at least, that you have to wonder, you have to question their finding of, of, um, you know, efficacy. And further, could there be harm? And the harm that we worry about is that if we give antibiotics early, but not curatively, uh, do we create the problem that everybody worries about? And that is a negative testing case of Lyme disease where people have all the symptoms actually have the disease, but the, the tests are negative and that actually happened in the study too. So it's, it's, it is complicated.
0: So there are herbs, there are homeopathics. Is this the case where you would probably want to send the tick in as we've been discussing?
1: Let me just, uh, yes. I I think sending the tick in is always a good idea. Do you have to No. Do we actually make a decision on treatment based on the tick findings? No, it doesn't help us for several reasons. One, you can't have the findings back soon enough to influence your decision making. And importantly, just because a tick has X, Y, or Z infector in it does not mean that it transmitted those. And the other issue is, of course, in the patient whose tick has none of those findings but is sick we can't discount that they had infection from another cause or that the test was simply wrong.
0: Or there's another tick.
1: Yeah. It's useful information, but not useful for treatment decisions. The treatment decisions have to be made based on the individual patient. So person, you know, you're not a patient until you're in your (laughs) provider's office, right? All right, the person. So
0: it's a clinical diagnosis. So if someone yeah. comes in, you have a fever, you have the rash, possibly, maybe yeah. not 30%, yeah. or you have joint pain, or and it's May yeah. or June, yeah. um, and your tick came back negative, even if you got it in 24 hours, you'd right. still be sick. It doesn't mean that you don't have these some sort of infection and should get treated. Right.
1: Yeah, right. You have to treat the person. You have to treat every person person one at a time. If you have activities that set you at risk for tick exposure, uh, regardless of your history of a tick attachment, and you have symptoms consistent with one of these diseases, I think the prudent clinician treats you.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Right. And importantly, and here's, here's, this is, I'll get on my soapbox or this one follows up. That you've got to be seen and follow-up. What what we want to make sure of is that we are not creating long-term cases of tick-borne disease. We, you know, the goal is prevention and early recognition. But those goals are because the late consequences and folks who end up with persisting symptoms following Lyme disease. Um, is a worrisome and significant problem. I think the recent numbers out of CDC and um, other investigators suggest that there are almost 500,000 cases of Lyme disease being diagnosed every year. Now the reported confirmed cases only number about 40,000, but there are about 500,000 based on other accumulated data with um, insurance forms and and such as that. And it is estimated from some other studies that there are 2 million people dealing with persisting symptoms after infection. So somewhere between 10 and maybe as high as 30% of individuals will have persisting symptoms after uh, treatment for Lyme. Um, that's a huge number of people over it's huge. time. So let's just take yes. that in for a moment. Yes. yes. So, and there there are varying reasons why that might be true. As we discussed, there might be other infections that haven't been identified and addressed. Um, It could be that there's persisting inflammation resulting either from um, proteins from the bacteria that was the infector, um, or persisting bacteria themselves. There could be persisting, but difficult to identify infection from the Lyme bacteria. So there, it is it is emerging and unsettled science at this point. And so we really need to address each individual, one person at a time. Um,
0: D- does this stay dormant? Can this be a dormant thing? You got your tick in... 2010, and now it's 2022. Is that long? Is that it? Does it? Is it that long? Or is that not long? And you know, too, well, wouldn't be that's realistic? a great question.
1: Uh, to don't which know? I'm not sure we have a good answer. We do know that uh, there is latency with this infection. Um, some of the early studies of neurologic disease indicated that they an individual's neurologic symptoms did not occur for 18 months after the known exposure. So we get into all of this, the known exposure. So we don't know, but yes. there does there is good evidence for latency. Um, uh, from my standpoint, uh, the known exposure being at that time, I would work on getting the rest of the history very carefully laid out. And were you really asymptomatic all that time? Or were you just not complaining? Did you have not enough to, to bring you to attention. right? So there's just so much to work through for people.
0: I, and some of the ones with, you mentioned with uh, shortness of breath, uh, mm-hmm. I'm wondering if people wonder if they have COVID or, you know, so they tested negative for a PCR test for COVID, but then ignored this idea that it could have been from a tick or, well, or something.
1: We're all kind of worried about that. I mean, really all kind of worried about that because the last two years of course um the preoccupation on everybody's part with coronavirus is appropriate but it does mean that some people didn't come to attention because they didn't want to um uh uh, come into contact with with the medical system Uh, appropriately they didn't want to i guess and some is that um Symptoms do overlap, you know, it's not like there is one and only one disease identified or definable by all of these symptoms. And so there is concern that some diagnoses have been missed because of uh, our attention to Coronavirus. So if
0: you just tuned in, by the way, uh, this is the Healthy Options Program on WERU Community Radio. I'm Rhonda Feynman. We're speaking with Dr. Beatrice Santier about ticks and tick-borne diseases. So we're tucking our clothes, uh, our, our, we're treating our, our clothes and... and um, Maybe now it's deet it, it, and all of that. We we think about why would we want to put this stuff on us? Isn't this is permethrin? It does it stay uh, in the clothing? Is it on our skin? Are we poisoning ourselves? You know, we have to think about in order to prevent one disease. Are we causing another? Yeah,
1: this is so complicated. It is great questions. Always great questions. You know, stop it. Um, okay. <laughs> Yeah, I, the the deal with permethrin is once it dries into the clothing, it's uh, inert in terms of people, or appears to be, to the best of our knowledge, at this time. You know, that's that's science. Always, it's what we know now. Um, so it it's related to chrysanthemums, although the synthetic is not chrysanthemums, but it's related to chrysanthemums. So it's a synthetic derived. Agent that looks that's a pyrethrin, like in chrysanthemum. Um, it appears to be safe for people, and in the non-wet form, safe for your um, domestic animals, um, specifically cats. Cats uh, do not have the ability to break down pyrethrins, and so uh, wet permethrin is a risk for your cat. Once it dries into the clothing, it is no longer a risk. Um, and I understand people not wanting to use a lot of it all over themselves. You know, you can get products like if you do your shoes and socks, 73 times decreased number of tick attachments, shoes and socks. So it's, it's a good thing. And it has been tested in the field for occupational workers who are in the field and has been shown to be, uh, effective at decreasing the exposures. Commercially treated products, clothing products, last through like 70 washes, seven zero washes. If you treat yourself, um, it's probably six weeks or six washes. Um, it's it's less. And it makes sense. I mean, we're not deeply treating the fabric. And I don't know what other process is used in um, okay. commercially treating. So it is effective. DEET and other products for your skin. DEET has a 65-plus year track record of safety and efficacy. And so I I think it, on parts of the skin that you're not putting in your mouth or in your eyes, it's an effective use. The key to using DEET and other repellents safely is wash it off after the adventure. The riskiest stuff we have seen with DEET has been prolonged high dose applications over an extended period of time, so repeated, prolonged, high dose, without washing it off in between. Right. And, Simple and thinker, wash it off.
0: <laughs> you don't need 100% D Oh no,
1: 23 per- to 50% is really and, it.
0: And then there's, what's the other one? Per-cardian, uh, per- oh,
1: picaridin. Yeah, picaridin. There's- has yeah. been found to be Very as effective, maybe even be more effective. And there's a, there's going to be one in the pipeline soon, Newt Katone, N-O-O-T-K-A-T-O-N-E, um, developed with uh, CDC folks. It is derived from yellow cedar oil. It's also found, I think, in grapefruit. So it's a naturally derived chemical. And it's um, it's looking like it will have good efficacy and good safety characteristics. So oh, waiting good. for that one to come down the pipeline.
0: And there's also, I'm, I'm, I'm holding up a, a bottom line uh, personal, which is a, a magazine here from April yeah. and uh, Dr. Horowitz, uh, who we know as a, a Lyme specialist is talking mm. about some of the, uh, some plans for clinical trials of a three dose vaccine and mm. also uh, some seasonal shots. What do we know about that? And I, I can't believe we only have a few minutes left. So, but we always only have a few minutes. I know, left. Okay. But, but we have time to discuss the, this. What do you know about these? Uh,
1: yeah, the, the vaccine uh, is looking like um, a really interesting relook at using outer surface protein A as the basis, but it is outer surface protein A minus the component. That was identified as perhaps causing um, uh, collagen vascular, uh, rheumatoid type symptoms and and other symptoms in patients who received the original Lyme vaccine, um, which was also OSPE, but this one has removed the offensive agent, the offensive portion. So it's, it's very exciting to consider I think it would be more interesting if it were a combo, aspe, OSP C, like we're doing for dogs, but it's okay. It's what they've developed and it will be interesting to see if it works. The worry I always have when we talk about um, Lyme vaccines is it's not the only thing that's in these ticks. And if it causes you to let down your guard about being prepared to go out into the woods, then we've done a disservice because we still want to keep ticks off of us, not just keep the disease, one disease from happening. So we'll see what happens with that. The monoclonal antibodies are being developed at, uh, I want to say, um, it's in one of the Massachusetts uh, institutes associated with Harvard. So is that Mass General? I think it is. but Klempner's lab, and they're looking at basically giving passive immunity. I think this is also based on OSP A, but that might be appropriate because OSP A is what's most prominent when uh, the bacteria is in the tick. So if we give you antibodies directed against um, outer surface protein A of the bacteria, while the tick is feeding, it absorbs those antibodies kills the bacteria in the tick, prevents Lyme disease. So it has an interesting idea for seasonal effect. That, that would be great. Uh, we used to do this all the time with hepatitis. Then we developed a really good hepatitis vaccine. So okay. you don't necessarily need the antibody. So, so it's got potential.
0: We're just about out of time, but I wanna do a quick review of what we've discussed here on this Healthy Options with Dr. Beatrice Santir. We know that there are a variety of ticks. We know that there's Powassan, which is rare and it's a virus. We know that there's bacterial infection. We know that um, if you get a tick, don't annoy the tick, take it out cleanly and send it in. If you have symptoms of fever, body aches, fatigue, All of those kinds of things you probably need to get treated because there's some sort of clinical thing going on and we uh, the two-dose prophylactic doxy is um, only based on one study we would say that a full course of doxycycline is probably a good idea Of course, we're not prescribing anything to speak to your physician, but um, there are also things with herbs and homeopathics that you might want to consider after you're out of the uh, acute stage or uh, in addition to the acute stage. want to protect yourself. Wear permethrin clothing, tuck socks, uh, pants into socks and t-shirts or shoe uh, into your pants and use some uh, Promethrin, as we said, on your clothing, and what's the other kind of twenty uh, percent DEET and twenty uh, percent? What, what does it be? The P-
1: picaridin. Uh, 20, 20, well, 23 or greater DEET uh, picaridin at twenty percent, and, and uh, others. You can check out the EPA page, and they do a pretty good job of of laying it out. So, prevention, early recognition, follow up.
0: And don't annoy the tick when you're taking it out. Okay. <laughs> right. Our guest today on Healthy Options has been Dr. Beatrice Santier. Thank you so much once again for being on Healthy Options with us. Always good to talk with you. You can find links to the show, to all the other shows that we've done with uh, Dr. Santier, and other information that was mentioned, as well as... Um, as I said, the preview shows with Dr. Santier on the public affairs archives at WERU.org. Thanks Joel Mann, Amy Brown at WERU for engineering support to Petra Hall for production assistance. And as always, thanks to all of our WERU listeners and supporters, this is Rhonda Feynman wishing you the best in health. Thank you for joining us.